Right, good evening, everybody. <clears throat> Hope everybody's had a good weekend so far. Hope you had a wonderful time at worship at church. And if you're worshiping now rather than watching this, I hope you have a blessed time when you come back and watch this. We'll, we would appreciate that. I'm going to put a shameless plug in up front. If uh, you, I'm going to record this for my podcast as well. So, hey, go, go, go link to my podcast. Uh, RK Ministries is on Apple, it's on Google, and uh, it's uh, on uh, Spotify. I know, and there's some others that it's out there on, but just go and like it and uh, share it and uh, give me a good review on there if you like the content of it. But if you're watching here tonight, if you have comments, that uh, you want to make put them in the comments if you got prayer requests put them in the comments if you got questions put them in the comments so tonight we're going to talk about the issue of forgiveness i think next week's going to be on marriage and commitment related to that issue and then uh, the third week will be on uh, the topic of hell and then if there are no other responses on what people would like any topics people like to talk about i plan on starting the book of revelation uh, and we just kind of go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. <clears throat> so I know there are a lot of prayer requests people have and a lot of concerns. So I'm going to open in prayer and ask God to bless those that are on your heart and mind and uh, then to bless us as we study tonight. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this privilege we have to use technology, Lord, to uh, study your word and, and share the truth of your word and the gospel of Christ. And I pray, Father, that it will, it will bring glory and honor to your name. I pray, Lord, that you would be with those prayer requests that are on the hearts and minds of those who will hear this and watch this, that uh, you would bring blessing to the lives of those who are dealing with difficulty. You will overshadow them with your love and your mercy, that you would bring healing to those who are sick, that you would be bring uh, stability to those who are having other issues in their life, Father God. And we just thank you for what you're going to do. Be with this time we have tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, the topic of forgiveness. So I thought what we would do would first start with what I guess would be the quintessential passages that people may think about when it relates to the issue of forgiveness. Now, there are probably a lot more than I'm going to mention because I'm going to only mention about four passages. Uh, two of them are the main passages, I think, that people would go to when they think about this issue of forgiveness. And then there are others that would relate to them <clears throat> in uh, some sort of way. But the first one, obviously, in my mind, at least the first one I thought about was the Lord's Prayer, or what I like to call the model prayer, because the Lord's Prayer is actually in John chapter 17. This is the prayer in Matthew 6, where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. When they ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. So I thought we'd share that, Matthew 6, 9 through 15. Just read it, and you'll at least have it in your mind when we get to talk, talking about these issues in just a bit. And we'll cover some of the aspects and difficulties of this particular text uh, a little bit later on. So Matthew 6, 9 through 15. Pray then like this, and I'm reading from the ESV. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Some translation may have trespasses. Uh, and verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine, for, uh, for, and, and then when you get to verse 14 is really where the difficulty comes in in the issue relating to forgiveness. And 
salvation. And I think this is where some people have some questions at least. Uh, because verse 14 it says, For if you forgive others, I think I may have left a verse out of there, but for if you forget forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you also. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So that's one of the difficult aspects of this verse as it relates to the issue of forgiveness and our salvation in particularly. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But one of the key issues that we know right up front that the idea of forgiveness is central to uh, our relationship with God and it's central to our relationship with one another. We can at least agree on that in <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 15, dealing with the Lord's the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And then the second passage that I thought about was in Matthew 18, and it deals with the parable of, of the unforgiving servant or unforgiving steward, if you will. It's a little bit lengthy. It's uh, verses 22 through 35. I think it's worth the read because, again, it gives us this flavor of what forgiveness is about. And, and it also has some elements we, we just read in, in the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. Uh, there, but Matthew chapter 18 verses 22 through 35 says Jesus said to them, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times therefore the kingdom of heaven may be uh, compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants when he begins to settle one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents now that, that doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't deal with talents in the sense of money anymore. But just so you can get a flavor of it, I, I kind of done some math on the issue or subject. And while it's, it, it depends on who you read, how much a talent is. Some people say a talent, or excuse me, a denarii is a day's wage. And uh, one person I read, denarii, 50 denarii was more like 10 months wages. So uh, that means a denarii was not necessarily a day's wage, but... And 500 denarii was uh, eight to nine years wages. So what we're going to do is we're going to assume five dena- 500 denarii would be 10 years wages to make the math easy, okay? It's close enough, eight to, eight to nine. So we'll, we'll assume it's 10 years wages. Well, there are 6,000 denarii in one talent, okay? Now, this guy owes 10,000 talents, to the king. So if you multiply that math out, you get this guy owing 60 million denarii. Okay? 60 million denarii. And so if you divide the 500 <clears throat> into that, which means it averages 10 years wages, uh, and, and the way we base the way that was based off what that was based off of is one person uh, enough money to meet their daily requirements for a day. Okay, now, it'll change if you got four people in the family and all that. We're just making it simple, okay? Because the point of this is to show you how astronomical this guy's debt is. That's what Jesus's point was, and, and this helps us visualize that. So the long and short of it is, if 500 denarii equals 10 years wages, then this gentleman owes in the neighborhood of 120,000 years of wages to this king. 
Now, I don't know about you, uh, even Methuselah didn't live 120,000 years. He, he, he's the one, he came close to 1,000. So this guy, the, the obvious point is there's no way this guy could have paid back this amount of money. In his lifetime or the lifetime of 120,000 know, people probably, he, he couldn't have paid back this, this debt that he owed. It's astronomical. And the point is, we owe that kind of debt in sin to God, and we can't repay that debt no matter how hard we try. But anyway, he goes on, verse 25. And since he could not pay, that's the understatement of that passage, and his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So in verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything, knowing he and the king both know there's no way he can pay everything. And out of pity for him, the master uh, of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. So this guy owed 120,000 years worth of wages. He can never repay it. He pled for forgiveness, and the master of the king forgave him of his debt. So he goes on his way, verse 28. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, 10,000, let's see, six, this guy owes 60 million denarii to the master. And his servant only owes him 100 denarii. So if 50 equals 10 months, so about two years worth of wages for this guy. Now, this guy, in essence, he, he had the potential to pay this this back to him, where the other guy had no had no way of, of making that amount of money. He wouldn't live long enough. And serving uh, and seizing him, this, this one that just got forgiven and was just released, this guy who owes him 100 denarii comes, can't pay him, and he seizes him. And he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. Verse 29, So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw this they uh, that had taken place, they went. they were greatly distressed. And they went and uh, reported to the mas- to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So again, kind of parallels what we just read in the model prayer that Jesus gave us. And, and we have that, that difficult issue we've got to deal with as it relates to salvation and this concept of forgiveness, which we will <clears throat> talk about momentarily. And so the next couple verses are shorter, uh, and uh, it, it deals with, just so you get the flavor, it deals with the aspect of how Christians, what our attitude should be in relation to forgiveness, uh, in particular forgiveness toward one another, <coughs> even toward people that are, are our enemies in that sense. So Paul gives us two passages, Ephesians four thirty two. 
Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So the idea is we as believers, we're like the first guy in this parable. We had a debt that we could not repay. No matter what we did, we could not repay this debt. And when we throw ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, he forgives our debt when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. So our attitude ought to be, because we have been forgiven such an insurmountable debt. So since God has shown mercy and grace to us, then we ought to be a forgiving people. That ought to be, forgiveness ought to be an evidence that a person has a changed heart from God. And then Colossians 3, 12 and 13, Paul put it this way. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving every forgiving each one as the lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive so again same sentiment just a different book different letter paul's saying the same thing because god has forgiven us we of all people ought to be the most forgiving of people okay so that's the sentiment i think that aspect those two verses and that sentiment along with what we're going to share about the issue of the gospel will help us understand what is going on in the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, and this parable to the steward with these difficult passages that we need to deal with. All right, so that's kind of an introduction to what we're going to talk about. And so I thought I'd I'd look at it this way, just there's about three three or four, maybe five bullet points that we're going to uh, talk about in light of this. <clears throat> so I think we need to understand the word forgiveness to start with. Okay? And I'll put a caveat up front. Yeah, I love word studies. I love to do word studies in the Bible, in particular in the New Testament, because I know a little bit more. Not that I'm an expert on anything. I know a little bit more about Greek than I do Hebrew, for sure. Uh, but here's the danger with word studies words if you open up your english dictionary and you go look up a word well you're going to find hey number one here's a definition number two here's a definition sometimes number three here's a definition well why is that because when you think about words and language words have what is called a semantic range of meaning in other words there's no one definite this is the only meaning of a particular word if they are they're very few of those that's why in our dictionaries there's usually a broad range of sentences or phrases that give us an idea of what this particular word means well the same thing in hebrew same thing in greek same thing in spanish english whatever uh in in greek there's a semantic range of meanings to words so while we can do word studies and find out the general idea of what words mean it helps us I think first see that hey there is a broad understanding of how these words are defined but the real way to define words is in context we can learn words we can learn a basic meaning 
But when we get into the context of what we're reading, it's going to ultimately open up what the author was trying to say by using this particular word. So just be careful with word studies to that degree. But uh, there's nothing wrong with using word studies. And it's interesting uh, for us to nail down what words are used in, in, this, con- in this sense for forgiveness in the Bible. And so with that said, uh, let's look at a little word study. And, and uh, in the Old Testament, again, this is stuff I got from other people looking on. One of my favorite one of my favorite tools, I got two of them now. One of my favorite tools in relation to this kind of stuff is eSword. Not that they pay me for any of this, but eSword, it is free. You can download it on your computer and download little modules for it. Some of them are free, some of them you have to pay for. But uh, you can go on there and you can search out words by their um, strong number. And it'll tell you every place that, that that Greek word or that Hebrew word is mentioned in the Old Testament for the Hebrew and the New Testament for <clears throat> the Greek. And so I like to do that and can find out. So some of it comes from there. and uh, Some of it just comes from other research papers I've read on these subject or issues. And then the other one is another good tool to put on your phone or your tablet or whatever. I, I don't know if they have a web-based or a computer-based. I use it on my phone almost all the time. It's a uh, literal word. And again, they don't pay me for this, but it's a good tool. And I like using good tools. Literal word. I think they use the NASB as their translation of the scripture. But in the literal word, when you pull it up, you click on it. You can, you can uh, press, long press on a word, and it'll bring up uh, at the bottom of the screen. If you're in the, in the New Testament, it'll bring up the Greek word that's related to that and definitions. And the neat thing to me about this is that on the right-hand side of that little uh, pop-up window, it will show you how many times that word appears in the New Testament. And then it'll list the verses. If you hit that little, that little, that little uh, button, it'll show you all the verses. And so you can go and look at all the places that it's used and get, again, a flavor of the, the way it was used. And it breaks it down by books. So you can go look at all the authors of each book of the Bible that it's, that it's mentioned in, and you can see how that author used that particular word. So it's a good way to, to do word studies, and, the, and those are two free tools. They don't cost you anything, and, and they're worth their weight in gold, in my, in my personal opinion. All right, so Hebrew. Two, there's really one major word that's used in Hebrew and one minor word. Now, the minor word, to me, has a clearer understanding of what forgiveness in the sense that we're talking about it, uh, mainly from the, well, it's a biblical perspective, but uh, we're going to spend most of our time in the New Testament. The first word, and again, I won't pronounce these Hebrew words correctly, so don't hold that against me. It's spelled in uh, the transliteration, or excuse me, the, the English transliteration of it would be S-A-L-A-H. So that's uh, Salah. <clears throat> not to be confused with Selah, which you find in the Psalms a lot of times. Uh, but anyway, it, it's used 47 times in the Old Testament. And the general idea of the meaning is to practice forbearance, to pardon, or to forgive. So it's used 47 times. The other, I don't have a word usage on it, but it's it's N-A-S-A, if you transliterate into English. And it has a long vowel marks over the A's, so I'm assuming it would be naysay. Uh, and it uh, means to take away guilt, iniquity, or transgression. And we're going to find that that relates to what the, the Greek words that are used for forgiveness are. 
it is ultimately this issue of forgiveness has to do with showing kindness and mercy and mitigating one's guilt over an issue, okay? Over a sin or a wrongdoing, if you will, their transgression. And so in the in the in the New Testament, there are basically two word groups which highlight three words. Uh, two are in the same group, and then there's a third word that we'll look at that are that are generally translated forgiveness. Now, again, as you'll see in just a moment, they're translated other ways in different places, but uh, they, these are the primary ones that are translated as forgiveness in our English translations. The, the first one is Afi Amy. Afi Amy. Uh, that would be... Uh, It's used 143 times in the New Testament. 127 of those uses are in the Gospels alone. So, uh, they're primarily it's primarily used in the Gospel. This is the one that you find in uh, in the Model Prayer, in particular. <coughs> Excuse me. 45 times out of the 143 times that it's used, 45 times. It is translated in the sense of, or used in the sense of, forgiveness, as we are talking about it. So, you can tell just from that uh, statistical number that there's a, there's a wide range of how this word is used, okay? And it really, to understand it and the reason, let me just give you the, the meaning that you get if you go to Strong's or Mounts or whoever you go to. Uh, to find your definitions. Generally, you're going to see that afiemi would mean to send forth, to relieve from legal or moral obligation, to cancel in the sense of mitigate, to pardon uh, a person. And so, you know, that first definition to send forth is kind of telling on the broadness of this word. And the reason it's like that is because it's, it's a compound word. And again, another caveat, when it comes to compound words in the Greek, because in the Greek you find that a lot of times, a preposition, and the way I describe it, a preposition is stuck onto another word. Uh, so you have a root word and a preposition stuck onto the front of it uh, to make a word in a particular meaning. Uh, and this is one of those cases. I think it's a preposition is op-ah. And Appa is, is, if I remember correctly, don't hold me to it. You can go look it up and correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe it's uh, like away a from. Uh, and then uh, Amy is uh, the other word that is at the root of this, which has to do with going. So in the sense of that, if you, you know, say, hey, here's two different words. We put them together. This is kind of what they mean to go from. So the idea is send forth. And be careful doing that because just putting two words together and taking the, the, the you know, cognitive meanings of each one of those words and trying to come up with a word, a meaning for that particular word. Again, context drives what these words mean. That's why we said in the front 147 times, 127 times in the gospel and only 45 times in the New Testament is it used to relate to the issue of forgiveness. But that's one. The second one in that group is a, a, obviously a lesser, a minor use of it. And it comes from that same, it's, it's similar, you can hear it, aphasis, aphasis. Uh, and so again, it still has that op in the front of it. 
but it's only used 17 times according to Mounts in the New Testament. Uh, and it means generally freedom in a figurative sense, pardon, deliverance, forgiveness, liberty, or remission. So again, it has these elements of releasing someone from their moral debt or to release someone from their guilt, if you will, in that sense. So those two, that, that we see primarily in the Gospels, in, in particular in our context tonight, we saw it in uh, the, Lord's, the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. And then the second group of words is, I, would, I guess you would say it's the, the charis group. Uh, charis, uh, if I remember right, it has to do with favor, kindness. Uh, you guys can go look that up as well. But listen to the word, you'll say it is charizomai. Charizomai, it's a verb. Um, and so it has. it's used 23 times in the New Testament, 15 of which are in Pauline epistles. So the majority of its uses is by Paul in his epistles. Uh, and again, you can hear that idea of, of grace and favor uh, in the word just because of the group of words that it comes from. And so you would expect the meanings to have that kind of um, definition. And so here, here, here's some general ideas of what it means. To, to gratify, to bestow kindness, to grant as a free favor to grant forgiveness to pardon. And so hopefully in all those definitions, you kind of see that even in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the idea of forgiveness <coughs> excuse me, has to do with showing a kindness or graciousness to another person by mitigating them of their guilt as it relates to a sinful act or a, as you read in, in, the, in the model prayer, a, a misstep. Uh, I, I can't remember the word there. Uh, it's it's uh, akin to paradidomai, uh, to walk around. But uh, it's a misstep is the implication behind the word. So again, a, tra- a transgress or a sin. So forgiveness is ultimately about whether it's God to us or us to someone else, showing grace and mercy and kindness by pardoning them for their wrongdoing, and particularly from human to human toward us, okay? Because I can't forgive them for something they've done to someone else, mainly forgiving what people have, how they have transgressed me. So that leads me again. If you got questions that you want answered beyond this, write them in the comments and we'll try to address those <coughs> as we have time. So that, that, that brings us back around to Matthew uh, 6, and in particular verses 14 through 15. You know, what about that passage? What about the text that says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your uh, father forgive you forgive your trespasses. <coughs> well, I think in order to help us understand that, we we got to look at how this text is typically interpreted. There are at least three basic concepts on how to interpret this passage. Okay. And I'm going to do them in the order of my least favorite to my favorite. 
just so you'll know as we go through. The first one I'm doing, I don't agree with at all. The second one, you know, it has some merit, but I think there's a better answer to it. And that would be, in my opinion, <clears throat> the third. And I'll explain why as we go through. So the first is, the first concept in translating this passage is, our redemption hinges. In other words, our being made right with God, or our staying right with God, if you want to put it that way, hinges upon our forgiving other people. So if we don't forgive, we will not be forgiven by God, and thus we will ultimately be damned to hell. So, I think that's a bad interpretation of this passage. Mainly because what we need to do with Scripture, because all of Scripture, right, is inspired by God, and we have these particular passages of Scripture that have in them elements that we don't quite understand what they mean. You know, how does this fit with other places of Scripture? So, what we need to do when we interpret Scripture is we need to take explicit texts and weigh texts that are less explicit in their teaching against them. And again, don't let that cause you any problems because we're, we're not saying that there's anything wrong with this text. It's in there and Jesus himself said it. But in order for us to understand that, it has to be we have to understand it in the context of the greater scripture because Jesus also is the ultimate author of the greater scripture because he inspired uh, the scripture to be written because he, he is part of the Godhead, right? The second person of uh, the Trinity. So if we think about salvation and redemption, and here's where the rub's going to be because we have people out there who have, in my opinion, a false understanding of redemption and salvation. If we think about salvation, Paul makes it pretty clear for us. Salvation is based upon God and not us. Right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Everybody knows that passage. That's a believer. If you've been in church any amount of time, Christian, you know that passage. For by grace have you been saved, or you have been saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And then the next clause. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So if we say that our salvation or our right, being made right with God is uh, hinged or linked to this idea of our forgiving other people, then we have just thrown out what the Bible teaches us about salvation, that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. It's all about him and not us. We'll talk more about that when we get to the end of this uh, conversation in just a moment. Because I believe the Bible is very explicit when it deals with the issue of salvation. That it's all of God and not of me. Nothing I do makes me right with God. What God has done in Christ Jesus, my only response is to bow my knee to Christ, to repent and believe. Right? And when I believe in Christ, and again, that's not of a word. What did Paul say? That's not of yourself. Grace nor the faith, he says. And again, we talk about that later. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith, comma, and that's not of yourself. 
God's working in us to open our eyes to the fact that we are lost people, that we need a Savior. And our option at that moment is to believe the truth or reject the truth, right? So anyway, God is the author and finisher of salvation. So I don't believe in works-based salvation. So I don't believe that that's what this text is telling us, that we won't be saved if we don't forgive. Now, I'll answer the other question that's probably in your mind uh, in just a moment. Does that mean we can just not forgive anybody then? Um, And no, the answer to that is no. And I'll tell you why when we get to the end of this. All right, so second option, okay, second option is this refers to daily cleansing. And the illustration used is Peter, when Jesus grabs the bowl and the towel, right, and he goes to wash the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter. If you remember the story, Peter says, hey, don't wash my feet. I need to be washing yours. You don't wash my feet. And Jesus says, hey, if I don't wash your feet, then you have no part of me. And then Peter says to Jesus, well, not just my feet, Lord, my whole body. Wash it. And Jesus said, your body's clean. You don't need your body washed, just your feet. And the implication is most commentators or most Bible teachers generally, when you say most, that's, that's paint with a broad brush, but uh, the ones that I've heard and listened to, I'll put it that way, generally so, uh, think that in the way of that represents this daily cleansing that we have from the Lord in the sense that as we go through this world, we do get tattered, we do we do misstep, we do, we do you know, sin, uh, but we can come to God and we, again, not confessing for salvation, but agreeing with him that what we've done was sin and asking him to help us and purify us. So that work of sanctification in our life is probably a better way to put it. It's the act of God sanctifying us through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, making us, conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus, Jesus Christ. But again, to me, that, that falls way short of what's going on in this passage because that really only applies to uh, me as a believer and it, it, it still doesn't it doesn't have the force that this text seems to have because this is a serious statement by Jesus. It's a serious statement by Jesus at the end of the parable that we read and at the end of the Lord's Supper. So there's some force behind this passage, and so that force must have a bite in some way. I just don't think that this represents the bite that this passage really needs to have. And I don't think it has to do with the issue of us maintaining our favor with God by the way that we forgive in the sense of our favor in a redemptive way. Okay? If that makes sense. If it don't, send me a question and I'll try to clarify. And so that leads to the third way. And this is where I land on this passage. Uh, This refers to the attitude of a believer versus a non-believer. Those who refuse to forgive have not truly received the forgiveness of God's redemption in Christ. And I think this parallels real nice with what Paul said back there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And if you remember in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Let me just read those again. Be kind to one another, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And see, that's the element behind it. Those who have truly received the forgiveness of God understand the magnitude of forgiveness that we have been given. 
and God has changed our heart and we will be a people who forgive other people. And Colossians 3, 12 and 13 says essentially the same thing, forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. And so in my opinion, I think that this passage is really showing us that if you don't have a forgiving heart, in other words, if you're not willing to forgive other people, then probably you have never really understood the forgiveness of God for you. And to me, that means you've never really become a Christian. You've never really been saved. You've never really been born again if you have an unforgiving heart. Because God will change our heart when we come to faith in Him. So if you got more questions about that, put them in there. I'll try to answer them. You're no expert on anything, but not afraid of any question that you put there. If I can't answer it, I'll let you know. Okay, we'll go find, try to find what we can uh, as far as an answer to that. All right, so that's my take on Matthew 6, 14 through 15 in the model prayer. And then I thought we'd finish up. And now when I say finish up, it's going to be a few more minutes because there's, there's another whole uh, another whole page if you combine these two in my notes. Uh, next point I had on here was some practical thoughts as it relates to this issue of forgiveness. Okay, So if we are called to be a people who forgive, what does that look like? When I flesh it out in this world, somebody does something against me, what's that transaction of forgiveness look like in in our life? Well, I thought I'd start with a working definition of forgiveness. And again, not that you ought to get all your Bible study off of uh, the Internet, but uh, there, there's a good source out there that I use uh, mainly. Here, here's the way I use it. I use it mainly to find cross-references on particular topics because in their articles they, they generally give cross-references in scripture and so it's a good way to help find some scriptures that will uh, will relate to a topic that you're thinking about or dealing with and this one is, uh, is uh, it gotquestions.org gotquestions.org but they had a good definition in their little article on forgiveness that I read and, and I thought that I would share it with you because I think this this in a nutshell demonstrates to us what forgiveness is all about okay even if you think about it from god to us or us to uh, someone else forgiveness is an act of the will forgiveness is not granted because someone deserves to be forgiven think about us and god we don't deserve it but god forgives us in christ jesus right <coughs> no one deserves to be forgiven forgiveness is a deliberate act of love mercy and grace if we can just grasp hold of that idea about forgiveness i think it'll change our whole perspective and it makes it easier for us to be people who forgive because it relates on our action and our will right now in a minute we're going to talk about another issue because there's two parties right it takes two to tango uh, so there's two parties to this when it comes to forgiveness but on our part it's an act of the will we choose to forgive right the other person has a part to play and if they don't play that part then we have another avenue i think that we can go down which also i think helps us understand why what is being said in matthew 6 in the lord's prayer the model prayer has nothing to do with our salvation um, because of this other avenue that we find in scripture all right where was that 
So good definition, working definition. Now, I just kind of put uh, questions to answer, maybe, in this way. And here's one that I think we always ask or we hear ask about, and maybe you're asking about forgiveness. Is repentance required for forgiveness? And so the idea is, and i got to tell you, I, I think I've changed my perspective on, on this, uh, even in this study on forgiveness. Because for the longest time, my thought was, even if they don't repent, even if they don't acknowledge it, I still forgive them and let it go, right? While I think that heart and sentiment is a heart of forgiveness, which we ought to have, it's more nuanced than that. And that third aspect that I was talking about a while ago, or maybe it's the, it's the alternative when someone doesn't, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I think I think repentance is required for forgiveness. It's required for us when we come to faith in Christ. Now, I know there are people out there who poo-poo the whole idea of repentance, but you know the first thing out of Jesus' mouth when he stepped on the scene in Mark chapter 1 was, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, so I think repentance is a very important aspect in the gospel narrative when Jesus uh, demands people repent. And then Paul reiterates that. Uh, in the book of Acts, when he tells, when he says that that uh, God has commanded everyone everywhere to repent, so uh, when it relates to the gospel, repentance is a big deal. Now, what repentance means, we can we can do another subject on that as well. Uh, not to belabor it too much tonight, it has to do with metanoia, it has to do with with the mind, the use of the mind, ultimately agreeing with God that we are sinners and that the things we have done have our sin and rebellion against him and we come under under his will and we come in agreement with him on that and then we do in a sense say lord i'm turning from that way of thinking and that way of life and i'm turning to christ jesus as my lord and savior i'm bowing my knee to jesus christ <clears throat> so uh, and just let me give you some verses that kind of le- uh, help us understand that i think repentance is required for forgiveness Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through 4. The Bible says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Well, in that one sentence, you know, we, we that one phrase, we got the idea. Here's what we need to do. First, we need to pay attention to our own lives. I think sometimes if we do that, we'd be less likely to even see what people, other people are doing. And we pay attention to our own lives. But if our if our brother rebukes us, our sins against us, then we are to go and say, "Hey, you know Jesus talked about this before. If you got a problem with somebody, go to that somebody and say, "Hey, here's here's an issue. You don't have to be you know you don't have to you don't have to be rude and crude about it. You can go in brotherly love or sisterly love and say, you know, here's what I see, and this is what's going on in my life." As relation to what you, what I, what I feel that you've done to me, or how you have sinned against me. But anyway, <clears throat> go to that person. If he repents, then forgive him. So the implication is, if he doesn't repent, we're not obligated to forgive him. Verse four. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, "I repent," you must forgive him. So I think in, in Jesus' words in that in that those couple verses, clear to me that repentance is tied to the idea of forgiveness. 
And it makes sense because it's tied to our forgiveness when it comes to salvation and it's tied to forgiveness when it comes to us and another person because we are to go and tell that person what the issue is and if they repent, we forgive. And what is forgiveness doing again? Remember, it's our it's an act of our will, our own volition. We choose to pardon, to mitigate, to let go of that offense in our life, and we are reconciled to them. Isn't that what salvation is all about as well? We're reconciled to God. So in that forgiveness, we are reconciled to that to that brother, or we're reconciled to that sister. So that raises the other question. What if they don't repent? Because clearly that passage seems to indicate that repentance is required for forgiveness. So what if they do not repent? Well then, here's what you do. And I'll read a verse to you in, in just a couple of verses, just a second. Here's what you do. You relieve yourself from that burden and you turn it over to the Lord. You don't bear you don't bear ill will to them. You you don't seek vengeance upon them. You don't go out and begin to talk about them and ridicule them to other pe- to other people. You release yourself of that burden and you hand them over to the Lord. Because again, you can't make someone repent, can you? You, you can't do that. So if they will not repent, if they refuse to repent, in the technical sense, I think in a biblical understanding, you can't technically forgive them for what they have done. But you can definitely relieve that burden from yourself and say, Lord, I've done what you asked me to do. Now I'm turning that over to you for you to do what you can do in that person's life. Now we can pray that they would come to the place of repentance and we can reconcile that relationship and keep doing that. But don't let that be a burden that, that eats away at your soul. Turn it over to God. Listen, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verses 18 through 19. If possible, that's very important, because sometimes the implication is sometimes it's not possible. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, okay? Again, implication is there are two people involved, at least, minimal, two people. You have a part, they have a part. If it's possible, you do everything that you can. Here's what he says. Live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Now that's the hard part, right? It's easy preaching hard living. Because our nature sometimes is to say, hey, they got me, I'm going to get them. Right? For the Christian, that ought not be so. What should we do? But, here's his, here's his solution. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, that's a tough place to leave it in right there, right? For the person you're leaving it for. Because that brings them directly under God in his wrath, in his judgment. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, <clears throat> I have come to the conclusion that I think repentance is necessary for true biblical forgiveness. So, if I have a brother or a sister who is wrong to me in some way, 
or at least I feel they've wronged me in some way, then I ought to go I ought to go to them rather than going around to everybody else and telling them what I think they've done to me. I ought to go to that person and I ought to sit down with that person and let's have a discussion. And if we come to that place where that person says, yes, I, I did do that and I am sorry for doing that, then I can forgive and we can be reconciled to one another. Now, if that person says, nope, didn't do it, not going to say I'm sorry for it, I can't make them, right? So in this technical sense, forgiveness is not available to them. So all I can do at that moment is turn it over to the Lord and let God deal with them. And there's not going to be any real reconciliation because that's what forgiveness, ultimately the end of forgiveness is reconciliation. So in that sense, there can't be true forgiveness and they won't be reconciled to me until they come to the place where they see the errors of their error of their ways, right? And I, I get it. The whole time I'm saying this, I'm thinking, hey, man, you got plenty of errors of your own, right? And that, and that is true. But in this specific issue, we're talking about a legitimate error, error that a person or trespass or sin or wrongdoing that a person has committed against you. And you have not committed one against them. And you try to go and reconcile and, and bring about forgiveness. And they refuse. All you can do is turn it over to the Lord. Take that burden off you. Turn over to the Lord. That's why I think Matthew chapter 6 is not telling us that, hey, if you don't forgive that person, because I can't make them do what they have to do, what their requirement is in this process. All I can do at that point is turn them over to the Lord. I can pray for them and keep praying about the situation. Turn it over to the Lord and let God deal with them, either in this life or in the life to come. All right. And so that leads to the next question, which may maybe should have came first. The idea is, well, what if I go to this person and they've done me wrong, I talk to them, they say, yeah, I, I did, I'm sorry, you know, and we forgive, you know, I forgive them and and we are reconciled together and, and we go about our relationship and, you know, as friends or brother and sister in Christ, whatever, and they do something else again. What do I do if they keep on doing it? I mean, is there a limit to it? And you, are, you guys already know the answer if you're Bible students, right? Because uh, Peter asked Jesus that same thing. We've already seen it in Luke's gospel in one of the, one of the passages that we read uh, already. Uh, so Matthew 18, 21 through 22. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And that's the way we think, right? <laughs> There's got to be a limit to this. How often do I have to do this, Lord, before I just kick this person to the curb and don't ever have nothing to do with them anymore? That's the human nature. And the Lord says, uh, Peter says, hey, I'm going to be real generous, God. I'm going to be real generous, Jesus. What about seven times? I, I think that, that's a number of completion. What about seven times? That ought to be plenty. If this cat, on the eighth time, if he does this thing, I'm done with it. I'm not worrying about it no more. Well, Jesus says to him, <clears throat> you got to be a little more generous than that. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, again, don't think that Jesus is saying that 77 times is the limit, okay? Because the reality is, how many people are going to be in a relationship with somebody who's going to do something 77 times, right? At, at some point, you probably, you know, leave them after the seventh time. <laughs> but the point is, it's an exorbitant amount is what he's saying as many times as it takes that's the heart of the believer as many times as it takes you go to that person <clears throat> you you talk about it they repent 
you forgive, you're reconciled. Now, I get it. That's easy preaching and hard living because the natural process of life, if that continues to happen in a life, you're probably really going to naturally just pull away from one another, right? Either they or you are going to naturally just pull away and not hang out as much and that kind of stuff. So the chances of it happening uh, more than that are astronomical. <clears throat> but that's not the point of it. The point is we ought to be forgiven people. If they repent, we forgive just like God. We repent. God forgives. Right? <clears throat> God forgives. We don't deserve it, but He does it because of Christ Jesus. Alright, so that brings us back full circle to this whole idea of our attitude. And I think that's what that last passage Jesus was saying. It kind of it kind of helps us understand what our attitude is toward forgiveness. And we've already read these texts. We won't belabor them too much. Ephesians 4.32. Here's the attitude of the believer. Those who have been truly redeemed and forgiven by Christ. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgave you. We need to imitate our Father. Just like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. Be imitators of God as dear children. Of all people, we ought to be a forgiving people. That's the character of Christianity. That's an evidence that we have been redeemed by God through Christ. Colossians 3, 12, 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Here's what you to put on. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. That's a requirement of Christianity. If we don't have forgiving hearts... And the reality is there's a problem with our heart. And that problem is more than likely that we've not truly been redeemed. Now, I don't know your heart. And, you know, maybe press an envelope a little bit. But if, a, if we are called, we call ourselves Christians and followers of Jesus Christ, and we have been forgiven like the, the man in the parable that owed the 10,000 talents, if we have been given this exorbitant debt that we can never repay, we, of all people, ought to exhibit forgiveness. And if Christ has truly come into your heart, Christ transforms your heart. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament, he takes out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh. <clears throat> and I wanted to end tonight just by giving you the magnitude, just like we did with the magnitude of the of the guy who owed the 10,000 talents, 120,000 years worth of labor. No way he could repay it. This morning we shared, uh, our sermon, my sermon was in uh, Romans chapter 5. We're going through the book of Romans at Friendship Baptist Church in Tallahassee. If you're nearby there and you don't have a church home, come there and join us. Or if you're looking for a place that does uh, expository, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, preaching through God's word. Um, then come by and, and we'll, be, we'll love to have you there worship with us 
But we share it in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And this is really Paul giving an explanation of verse 5 in that chapter. God has poured out his love. Or as the King James says, God has spread abroad his love in our hearts. And Paul's helping us understand how it is that God has demonstrated his love. And this morning, I, I just used... If you just have that text and you open your Bible up to that text and you could follow along with this, you would see the beauty of what it is that God has done for us. Because the first thing that we have to note is who we are. And Paul lays it out in four phrases in this text. There's four words that identify who we are. In this very first verse, we were still weak. We talked about that this morning, our inability. The second word is ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. We are ungodly people apart from Jesus Christ. And then the third word is in verse 8. We were still sinners. So you see, so far we are weak, ungodly sinners. But what does Christ do? He dies for us. And then in verse 10, uh, he gives the, the, the word that, that, that wraps it all up in a bow for us. We were enemies. You see, that's who humanity is. Apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we are weak, unable to come to God. We are ungodly in our, in our nature toward God. We, we are lawless. We, we are irreverent to God. And thirdly, we are sinners. All of this impacts our actions in this world. All of this impacts how we live our lives in this world. And then to sum it all up, Apart from Christ, we're enemies of God. Every human being in this world who has not come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is an enemy of God and under the wrath of God. And they're one heartbeat away from spending an eternity in judgment at the hand of God. That's who we are. But here's the beauty of it. Look at these phrases in this passage. And, and there's a recurring theme that takes place in the end of ver in verse six is the phrase Christ died for, and in verse eight Christ died for, and in verse ten by the death of the, His Son, and, and again if you want to expand it out in verse nine by His blood, which implicates or uh, indicates His death, and so listen listen to this idea, listen to what Paul describes this. You remember the four words: we are weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. In spite of that, look at what Paul says. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still ungodly, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, in verse 8, Christ died for us. In verse, in verse 10, while we were enemies of God, Christ, God reconciled us through the death of his son. While we were weak, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. And so, when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, God forgives us in Christ Jesus in spite of who we are. And that's the way we've got to be. Because I didn't deserve God's forgiveness. You don't deserve God's forgiveness. No one deserves forgiveness. We're all guilty. We're all wretched sinners. It takes God in Christ to transform us. 
And when Christ grabs hold of our heart, he changes us. And we will become a people who forgive. Because we have been forgiven much. You see, that's the problem. That's the problem with the world today. It's the problem with the way we share the gospel today. People don't realize, even believers sometimes don't realize how much you have been forgiven. One one of the greatest things that bothers me in churches today, and I'm going to end with this, is when we get this concept of a testimony. Because a lot of times what a testimony is, is I get up in front of the church and I tell how despicable I was. I go through the litany of my sinfulness, right? Whatever it may, you think of the most egregious sinfulness you can think of. And that person goes through the litany of that sinfulness. And then they talk about how God has saved them. And we look at that and we say, man, what a testimony. Boy, I wish I had a testimony like that. Really? Really? You wish for your children that that's the kind of testimony that they could have? Shame on you for that first. What kind of parent are you if you want your children to have that kind of testimony? If you call yourself a follower of Christ. But here's the second part of that. We get a second person up there. They were saved when they were 8 years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, whatever. Saved when they were a teenager. They didn't have enough time in their life to do a lot of those things. And we look at that and we, we don't think that that's a really good testimony. Here's the reality of the thing. That 10-year-old, that 8-year-old, that 13-year-old, they're just as hideous a sinner as the one who listed out their litany of debauchery that they lived out in their life. We're all equally as guilty before God because we're all weak, ungodly sinners who are enemies of God. That excludes no one. We're all equally guilty, so we have all been forgiven much. So anyway, we ought to be people who forgive. So I hope that was beneficial to you. If you got more questions, again, put them in the comments, and we'll try to answer those. And uh, if you listen to this on the podcast later, go and and click it, and share it, and invite people to it, and and give it a good uh, a good review on there. Even if you don't listen, go do all those things uh, anyway. Because people need to hear God's word, and uh, one of the things that uh, I've always hung on to is. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ or some translations say the word of God. Well, Christ is God, right? Uh, so here's the thing. How does faith come? By hearing God's word. And people need to hear. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, use it. All the things that people need to throw away, let them throw it away. All the things they need to remember, you help them to remember that, Father. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>